Welcome to Big Data Small Talk, where we take the vast and complex world of data and break it down to bit-sized accessible conversations. Each episode is featured by leaders in the fields of data science, AI, or data engineering, as we explore the latest trends, challenges, and opportunities around data. Each episode of our podcast is recorded in the live Twitter space and then edited and published as podcasts. So follow us there to engage in the live sessions or listen to the podcast for a convenient way to learn about the latest developments in the world of AI and data science. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get started. So hello everybody, I am Sabrina and I'm a developer advocate at Chikuta, which is a platform built to abstract away a lot of the complexity of building, deploying, and maintaining data models, um, especially if you're working with large amounts of data, machine learning, deep learning models, blockchain data, and basically everything you need to take your model from scratch to production, uh, which is basically a lot that we're talking about here today. So thank you for tuning in here with us. And the guests that we have here on stage are all very used to working with data and also sharing their experience with others. So I can't wait to hear from them about the topic that we have today, which is one that you definitely must know about if you're looking to become a successful data scientist or data engineer. Um, so yeah, thank you to the speakers so much for being here with us today to share their experiences around machine learning. And also thank you, Michael, for giving the idea for this super interesting topic that we have today, uh, which is the challenges of putting and keeping machine learning models in production. Uh, so the models in production are those actually running in the website, which determines the data that will be shown to the final user. So overall, we're going uh, to go through the problems data scientists or data engineers usually face when they are putting uh, or keeping those models in production so that you can learn from the things that we're going to share and also not have to go through the same things that most data scientists usually do. And a lot of the discussions that we're going to have here today are also inspired by this amazing article called Operationalizing Machine Learning, an interview study by Shreya Shankar and a few other amazing authors. I'll leave the link in the comments if you guys are interested in checking it out. I highly recommend it. And thank you again, Michael, for recommending it to me as well. Uh, okay, so uh, it's an amazing stage that we have here today. So I'll let the speakers introduce themselves, starting in the order I have on the screen here. Uh, Kristen, uh, would you like to start introduce yourself to everyone? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today. It's uh, super exciting to chat with you all and love talking about this topic of getting models into production, which I know is uh, basically everyone's, you know, everyone's hackles rise when they hear this. So it's so fun. Um, I'm the CPO of a stealth mode data science and growth consultancy. So we're, uh, we're kind of under the radar right now, but launching pretty soon with our public branding. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Prior to um, starting this company, I led a data science and economics team under Jeff Wilkie in the retail org of Amazon and also did customer retention and instrumentation in the Amazon devices org. So I have sort of background in um, marketing, product management, data science, leadership, that kind of stuff. Amazing. Yeah, thank you for being here with us today. Excited to talk more about uh, with you about all of this stuff. And also we have Heartbreak. Um, would you like to introduce yourself to everyone? Hey, what up, everybody? My name is uh, Harpreet Sahota. I'm a uh, DevRel manager at Desi AI. Uh, prior to Desi, I was at a company called Pachyderm. And prior to Pachyderm, I was at Comet. Um, so I've been in DevRel space for about a little over a year. Before that, I was a, a lead data scientist, a senior data scientist, worked as a, a biostatistician and an actuary as well. Uh, I'm excited to chat with you all. So happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for being here with us as well. And finally, uh, I'm just waiting for Stella to get on stage, but Michael, would you like to introduce yourself and say hi to everyone? Sure, hello everyone. Um, I'm Michael. I've worked as a machine learning developer advocate at Converge.io um, slash Intel. And a lot of my work was on evangelizing their MLOps platform, which was essentially a cloud agnostic, um, tool agnostic container-based platform. Um, with the whole goal of making it easier to get models and actually keep them in production. So I'm really excited about today's talk. Yeah, amazing. Um, I'm super excited as well. 
And Stella's having a, a bit of issues trying to get in as a speaker, so I'll let her introduce herself later on. So I think we can just go ahead and start uh, jumping into the questions I have prepared here for you guys. So um, first things first, we all know that uh, today we're talking about challenges of putting and keeping machine learning models in production. And so my first question for you guys is, what can possibly go wrong when you want to build your model in production? And I know there's a lot of answers you guys can share for this one, so who wants to kick this one off? I can kick it off a little bit. Um, so one of my favorite sort of errors is um, essentially models are very different if you train a laptop versus um, being actually inference in production. So uh, one big thing I never really thought about when I was first developing models was oftentimes models have a, um, an agreement, a service level agreement, where you can only have a certain latency to actually have a product be functional. Um, if you have autocomplete on like Google Docs or something, if the model itself took, you know, five seconds, it's actually a useless model because for a lot of applications, you need to have models spell predictions very quickly. Yeah, and just to kind of echo or, or that sentiment, like when I was working as a data scientist, like primarily I was working on structured tabular data and whatever inference was happening, they were typically done like as batch jobs overnight. So latency wasn't an issue. Uh, but then now like the most interesting stuff in you know, deep learning is happening kind of on the edge or on browsers on resource constrained devices. So it's not only like the latency, which is, you know, the, the speed at which the inference is happening. It's also like the size of the model, the footprint of the model, will it fit onto the device, the throughput, how many frames per second can that model have uh, or tolerate? So like a use case that all of us probably use is like the blurred background on Zoom or on Google Meet, right? Like, like if you're using Google Meet, on your browser, where your browser is kind of like a resource constrained environment, right? So the model that fits in the browser and runs on the browser, it needs to have small memory footprint and also needs to be able to, to do inference fast and, and handle a lot of frames per second. Um, and these aren't really things that, you know, I think about or was thinking about when I'm like messing around with tutorials on a Jupyter notebook, like just in the lab or whatever. Um, so that's definitely a, a huge concern. Yeah, those are both uh, equally plus one to those answers. I, I think, and you'll forgive me, my 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 uh, my favorite thing to do is propose a framework. So um, the framework, as I was thinking about this question, the framework that had come to mind, which those two are, are I think, great examples of, are we've got is these, these ideas of incompatibility of the model with the environment in which it will actually be used. And when I think about the incompatibilities that I've seen, you know, echoing both Harpreet and Michael, incompatibility of the models, the inference with the latency requirements of the environment, um, features being incompatible with the prod environment. So for example, um, if, if a feature takes too long to generate, that could be one type of latency that actually is different than the model's inference latency altogether. Um, features not being available in the prod environment, something we see pretty commonly. Um, so that's, that's kind of two features incompatible with prod environment, features not available in prod environment. Inference having too much latency, like the model itself, its inference runtime is too long. And then the code to use the engineer to use to engineer the features is difficult to productionize. This is what we see all the time. Why MLOps folks are like, stop using Jupyter notebooks. You know, like that's part of why that happens is because the code for generating those features is just way too hard to get into production. Um, and then artifacts from the training workflow are not neatly packaged during training such that when you go to productionize, like whoever's productionizing, it can't actually find all the artifacts they need and reproduce them in the production environment. So we see this like, you know, you have untitled, untitled Python notebook 10 <laughs> has output in like model version 120. And um, you're like, which one of these is actually my model that needs to go in prod? 
Um, so uh, that is, those are the ones that I would say I see the most commonly when, when you're taking a model to broad. And again, I'm, I work a lot in um, like business data science, so tabular data. So some of the, the examples that Harpreet gave are definitely like this edge stuff. Um, uh, those would be um, ones that I don't tend to encounter as often, but these are the ones, you know, working with tabular data, working with business analytics problems. Those are the ones I see all the time. Yeah, that, those are definitely uh, some things I saw mentioning on the article I told you guys at the beginning of the spaces and also like mismatching development and production environment are one of the things that the data scientists and data engineers usually struggle a lot with. And uh, finally, we got Stella here on stage as well. So I'll just let her introduce herself to everyone. Uh, hey, Stella. Hi. Hi, everyone. Great to finally be here. I guess the best part sometimes is just replug in and they will all work. <laughs> Sorry about being late. Um, yeah, this is a super exciting topic. Excited to chat with Michael again and Christine Haprit. Great to meet you. Um, just short introduction for myself. Um, I'm trained as a, I'm trained as a client climate scientist and physicist actually, but I'm self-taught and transited to machine learning and engineering. Um, worked in various different places and now building Shokudo with amazing people like Sabrina. Um, and we're working with uh, ML experts, ML production problems. So this is a super challenging thing in production. And um, it, it is actually a bottleneck to get the new algorithms out there for real. So I'm excited to talk about it today. <laughs> yeah, I'm super excited to have you here as well. This is a topic that I know you, you like to talk a lot about. So if you just want to go ahead and answer the question I was just talking with everyone is what can possibly go wrong when you want to build your model in production? I know we have a lot, you have a lot of answers to this one. <laughs> There's, well, a lot of things can possibly go wrong. <laughs> it's, I guess um, I uh, many of you has already touched on the environmental difference, which environment difference, and that that's one of the big one. And um, it, uh, the language difference sometimes, like believe it or not, sometimes that you're, you're coding in Python, but your production environment is in Java, for example. So you have to like refactor everything to the, the, the language even that's different. Um, another thing that usually is a problem is, um, is the hardware actually differs so that the framework that you're training, you're trained on actually doesn't work on that new hardware or like different versions are expected. So all of those are, it's not software environment, but it's actually still a, a hard constraint when you go to production and the model accuracy can, can go beyond the roof because the training data is not representative to the production data or there's data has shifted too quickly. While you're training, the data has already looked very different. So all of those are, um, I guess, common problems. I can list a whole bunch of them, but I guess it's gonna occupy a lot of time. But these are the top ones that we usually see um, that's, that are, that are uh, making things stop in the whole process. Yeah, for sure. And there's many aspects to it. I think we're going to go deeper into uh, each one of those things we mentioned, but those are definitely great points that everyone here brought. And I recently saw a post by Santiago, who's a very, very popular in the machine learning Twitter, basically showing a board saying, I'm not sure if you guys saw that, but it got a lot of attention. It was showing a board saying, better data is better than better models. And definitely changing the model in production can give you a lot of headaches, but sometimes you have to do it. Um, and we can see that there is a strong advantage because of that, of getting value out of simpler models over complex ones, because then it's so much easier to know what's gone wrong in production and what changes you need to make and stuff like that. And my question for you guys here about this is, when is it actually valuable to go and change a model in production? And what things you should consider before that, before changing the model itself? So who wants to uh, kickstart this one? I'll start with just a simple point. Um and I'll let everyone else go into more detail on many different things. Um, another thing is that really no model lives forever. So oftentimes um, you have to retrain models because models decay because oftentimes they're trained on, you know, previous data. But, the, you know, you have to be able to either batch update them or retrain them in real time. And that is something a lot of people need to really consider. 
Um, like how often do you want to retrain a model, for example? There's a thousand other things too. I'd love to, you know, piggybacking off that, what I, the way that I would, uh, the way that uh, I might kind of echo that, what I tend to tell the scientists that work for me is just assume you have to change models in production. Like there's, is if your model has any level of success, it will be switched at some point, if at least for retraining purposes. I think that that's a very safe bet to say that, um, that at least retraining is needed. So having an assumption that you have to change models tends to be um, one of the best ways of um, of future proofing the work that you're doing. Um, one of the things I would I've thought about in terms of what to consider is you know when do you know that you should switch versus you know should let the current model continue to run. Um, having a strong mental model for the benefits and cost of model swapping, um, in particular benefits being um, apples to apples benchmarking between your two models in terms of accuracy, latency, or complexity or cost, um, and then knowing how to, um, uh, w knowing what the cost of actually swapping it is. So it's one thing if you're swapping out the same model type just, you know, a retrained version of your same model. And it's another thing if you're changing sort of the architecture behind that model that's going to change, you know, it's going to require engineering resources, or it's going to require a data engineering resources, something like that. So knowing, having a very strong framework, here's, here's how I measure benefits of models against one another in an apples to apples way. And then here's how I measure the cost of the effort to um, swap my model. Um, and hopefully the, um, the, cost reduces as you assume that that will need to be in place. So your architecture of building your model has that assumption built in. Um, the last thing that I think I've most recently been super interested in is um, when you think about apples to apples benchmarking, looking at how individual predictions for individual observations will change pre and post. So if you swap your model out, um, how are the predictions for one observation going to change? And will that have some sort of downstream effect on your users? You know, I think about things like um, if you were doing some sort of customer segmentation work and suddenly some of your users switched, maybe it's better accuracy overall, but that difference could, you know, throw a wrench in someone's uh, downstream processes. So knowing observation level differences is super important. And rant. And you can kind of test all that with like a, a shadow or a canary deployment. <clears throat> where you've got essentially two models in production, one that's kind of certain predictions and one that's not certain predictions in real time, but you're still kind of testing uh, how one would perform versus the other. So um, there's ways that you could, you could test that as well. Um, and there, uh, yes, totally second on those points. And there are already some tools that's built specifically for those type of uh, problems based to be able to monitor data drifting or your, your model performance difference. And also tools like um, those, there's some uh, model serving framework that let you do um, serve multiple different versions of the model and like gradually shift based on the, the um, accuracy in actual production. Those, those you, can, you can have those tools to in your, in your stack to be able to quickly have those data drifting um, incorporated into your whole strategy. And you can also use um, the Shibuya platform that has those tools already all built in. Um, and then, but you can also build your dashboard yourself and to monitor some of the basically simple things like stats of the data, stats of the accuracy. Um, but these are, this will take a lot of time to bootstrap from the beginning. Um, but yeah, keep modeling and uh, monitoring and then um, be able to automatically have some policies automatically switch and that'll be the key. Stella, do you have some tools that you would recommend for that? Because this is my current I'm researching right now. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, there are a few open source ones. Uh, there's, there's something called Evidently that uh, we're testing right now. Also try to integrate, and there's also some other tools that, um, such as Y Labs that um, Y Logs, which just gives you um, like visibility of uh, when your data is shifted. So it's pretty much like built already built, so that you don't have to build this from scratch. Um, and we also have already integrated those into our platform, so you can try the Shapiro platform. Um, there is also non like non open source tools for this that um, does 
does similar things. Um, and in theory, there's also like um, some theories that keeps coming up uh, here and there, try to make this whole uh, detecting more meaningful. So what do we actually measure uh, to make sure to, to say, oh, this is currently the status that you need to change the model. So Kristen, we can, we can connect offline to also talk about some of the tools afterwards if you're interested. Yeah, that's amazing. And also, uh, there's a lot of uh, people on, on the comments uh, just sharing machine learning memes, which I enjoy very much. And yeah, this is a great segue for the next question. Uh, that it is widely agreed that NLOPS is hard. And citing the operationalizing machine learning article here, some reports claim that 90% of machine learning models don't make it to production. And others claim that 85% of machine learning projects fail to deliver value. Uh, and this is on quote because there's a massive ongoing maintenance cost in real world machine learning systems. So it's easy to become stuck in endless experimentations because it's so hard to actually go and deploy data pipelines, uh, at least without Shikuro backing you up. So it can take months for a company to just try a new feature idea. So, you need to have a really good reason why your model or the change you want to make is significant enough. And that way, bad models never make it very far. So my question here is, uh, like, keeping in mind that end-to-end stage deployments can take several months, um, and changing the model itself doesn't necessarily improve the overall performance. Uh, I want to know from you guys why this process takes so long, usually, and what are some ideas of what can be a way to minimize wasted work and actually boost the model performance in that sense? Data, <laughs> the need for good data, <laughs> quality data. Uh, that's usually been like any machine learning task that I've had to undertake in like the professional world. Um, you know, back when I was working as, as a lead data scientist, like we had this, this a project we're working on and uh, I was trying to find data for it. There's like no data dictionary. I had to go talk to like 15 different people to understand what each one of these fields represent in the database and uh, find some way to like combine them together. And then, yeah, it was, it was just the data. The data was a mess. It, like I spent more time uh, collecting and cleaning data than I did actually building the model. Michael, you should go. I rant. I'm gonna super rant on every single one of these questions because it's my favorite uh, topic. So. <laughs> okay, I'll go a really, really short comment here. Um, I mean, deployments can you know, take months, and a lot of times things don't work. I mean, as he said earlier, it's a lot of it's based on the data that you have. The data that people have for machine learning, it wasn't you know purpose built for machine learning originally. So of course, you have to go through a lot of validation, um, and deployments take months. I mean. You mentioned earlier, there's often just uh, a mismatch between development and deployment environments. Um, there could be a lack of DevOps capacity to support ongoing maintenance. The people that are the machine learning engineers um, or like the machine learning experts that build models aren't often the people with DevOps expertise. Um, people often have, you know, some CI/CD problems, uh, continuous training problems, lack of source control, um, and there's a million reasons. So I'll let uh, you want to rant now? <laughs> please don't. <laughs> like, trust me, there is no. <laughs> please go. I, I I will fill whatever void. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I got my comments across. Um, um, I think the way that I would summarize kind of those like every all those ex examples and um, you know those painful experiences we've all had is there's a there's kind of a lack in most data science workflows of the um, what the end product deployment will look like and then working backwards through the workflow to design a workflow that actually works for that deployment. And I think part of it is like there's there's this cultural phenomenon with data science where it feels like some of that's not a data scientist's job. So the modeler shouldn't have to know the ins and outs of those things. And then on the other hand, um, the folks who, it is very clear that that could be their responsibility, like MLOps folks or um, the engineers, they don't 
understand how their environment impacts parts of the machine learning workflow because they don't know how to build models. So there's this like disconnect between these two groups. I'm actually in the camp that data scientists should be the ones to kind of reach across the aisle because they're uh, because there is so much about our domain that is probably not a reasonable expectation to teach an engineer what our what our workflow looks like or to teach a business person what our workflow looks like such that their you know what they're designing works for us so I actually do recommend data scientists reach across the aisle the um, and the important thing that I would love for MLOps folks to do is to provide a few patterns. So right now, data scientists tend to like do what they want. <laughs> the way I describe it is kind of like artists, like they have their workflow, they want to use the workflow the way they want or use the new tool or whatever. Having a very small number of patterns and understanding that pattern end to end in your organization is the number one thing that has sped up end to end deployment in all of the organizations I've worked with. So just having a simple batch pipeline and a simple real-time pipeline that is the default for every single product is like the number one way to speed up end-to-end deployment and make it them more likely to succeed. Um, Then work backwards from what that deployment pipeline looks like in order to design products that actually work in that pipeline. And that has solved almost all problems. Even when I'm talking about like super, super large scale models um, that has solved all of those problems in, in, in my experience. So that then aligns your feature engineering and inference, um, and they're simple. You know, as few tools as you can manage um, to get the performance that you need in prod. Like that, that's my number one recommendation. Yeah, absolutely, and that's um, a great thing for you to mention because I think what we try to do in Shakuto is giving the data science that data scientists that power of going and being able to do those things themselves without need of a data engineer backing them up and actually because they know a best kind of uh, what they need to do how their workflow um, actually works how to improve it and now what Stella talk a little bit more about it um Stella how uh, do you see this oh I was uh, gonna say I'm really happy to hear that Kristen brought up that one um so there are people saying like if you let data scientists just deploy end-to-end, that sounds crazy, but that's actually probably the best way to do or do it, in my opinion as well, because like data scientist has the whole whole knowledge, the most important part of knowledge, and also the whole uh, production is not a one-time thing. Like it's, it's a cycle. So once you're production, you have to like um, monitor it and improve the model. It's, and it's, it's a continuously going process. So be able to debug, be able to know how to improve things without having to always go to someone else or another team to help is highly sufficient, uh, efficient uh, compared to like uh, a, a lot of teams try to talk together. Um, so this is, so that's also Sabrina, uh, you just mentioned that's also what we try to do here with Shokudo so that the data scientist team can are fully empowered to do all, the, all of those themselves. Well, maybe you have a new customer here in in. <laughs> <laughs> We're just scroll missing. Yeah, it's it's. Great. Yeah, and um, yeah, the point I totally agree. The point, the ML model to production is a really complex task, and only a small fraction of real world ML systems are composed of real ML code which is crazy and it's usually around less than 10 percent so the required surrounding infrastructure and all the other supporting aspects are are really complex so you need to spend a lot of time to make those things uh, to run your model in production and if you want for example to add parallelization or optimize uh, the cloud or any infrastructure usage it takes even more effort to do so the next question here is when should you worry about model parallelization and optimizing the infrastructure usage? And what would be the best way to do it? I have a lot to say on this one, so I'll just jump in. I think um, always, because when people usually try in the POC stage, it would not be the full data. It's most of the time a small subset of data and on a small subset of the inference, um, say, your customer base. So all of those are going to look very different in, in production. So you're going to face problems with either too much data or too much mod, too many models or both. So some tooling that's dealing with those things are 
super important to already have in your infrastructure. So things like Triton, that or NVIDIA Triton that does scalable uh, for, for, for model inferencing. And then there's also other tools such as Ray for like, scalable model training and inferencing. So um, all of those tools are going to be the friend, our friend, when we put our POC model that was designed for like working on the small subset of data to production quickly and to be able to like monitor what are the difference and quickly make changes. Um, and also on cost, cut, cost cutting, because uh, many of those tools are optimized for using, um, deploying a lot of models, but with smaller subset of resources. So you can optimize them uh, without having to duplicate all your infrastructure for those many, many models. Um, I will stop from stop unlocking there. Amazing, yeah. Uh, Kristen, want to go next? Yeah, I'll do a quick, just a quick plug. Is kind of it's sort of the same point that I just made, but having patterns for that, like here's your here's your batch pattern, here's your real time pattern, and then having tiers within those patterns such that you can scale up through your tiers and understand what levers you're pulling. That's going to increase cost, but is going to decrease latency. Just thinking it in a very simple framework like that, and then just having your tiers and saying like, these are the ones. If you if you have a model of this size, data of this size, data of this type, you need this tier of serving. And I find having those frameworks predetermined just is like it makes everything else so much easier. The last thing you want to think about when you've been spending, as Harpreet said, like you know, 120 hours just digging through data is like then you have to make all these decisions around architecture. So. Just um, simplifying it, making a menu, sticking to that menu is, is really helpful. I think I think you hit all the great points there. Um, uh, one thing I want to quickly mention is like the time to worry about model parallelization and optimizing infrastructure usage sometimes can actually be before um, you actually like build the model um, just to see if something's possible. And of course, if by the way, if you have problems with like model parallelization, optimizing infrastructure, um, those sort of things, um, there's a lot of tools that kind of help you do it because it's not often easy uh, to build models that can parallelize well, um, to code these things, to have tools that work together and fail in similar ways. Um, that's why, for example, there's Kudo Platform um, that can really help you scale your computing. Um, if you want to use like Ray, DAS, Spark, et cetera, um, like free up like people for infrastructure costs, um, deal with garbage collection, all those sort of things. Any other tools that you would recommend? Many, but I want to give everyone a shout out. <laughs> All right. Um, so I think we, I, I think right at the beginning, uh, Chris was talking about model performance. And yeah, like next question is about model performance. And some teams prefer to like, we train the model every day to improve performance. And there's a few tricks they use. And uh, a lot of things can cause model, model performance to de degrade. Um, it's like data missing or data incomplete or some production pipelines. And the next question is, what are strategies you guys would recommend to sustain the model performance post deployment? Monitor, <laughs> monitor for data drift, make sure that the, the data that is coming in in production environment, like just look at the statistical distributions of it and make sure it kind of lines up. With, uh, with what it is that you're trained on. So try to come up with some metrics to do that. I guess one in particular that's coming uh, top of mind is maybe like KL divergence or something like that. Um, but I think that's really a, a fundamental and, and basic thing to look at is just make sure that there's uh, harmony between what you're seeing in production and what you're trained on. This is one of my sort of big gripes about data science tooling right now, which I think is part of why it's ironic that I'm talking 
you know, to you, Sabrina, <laughs> like, because like you guys have these tools. So like, I think this is a big, like the answer is totally right. Like what Capriz said is it's monitoring. Like you have to monitor the model, but I think that it's so big and the tools today only either give you all the options or they're so opinionated that they only work for some use cases and like, that's one of my biggest gripes and why I roll all of my own <laughs> like, when I do monitor. <laughs> so, like I roll everything by myself because I just, there's no tool that either gives me the options that I need without like overwhelm and heavy lift or a tool that, um, you know, is not so opinionated that I can't use it for every model that I build. And so like that to me, like I have this one, you know, if I was to be like the clickbaity, whatever, my one weird trick um is to make sure that not only can you reproduce your features in production but you can reproduce your label and that's one thing that i saw in terms of data science workflows that i was i was kind of surprised was not the norm is that oftentimes after the models retrained like data scientists will just sort of like forget where their where their label code is <laughs> it's almost impossible to like figure out how your model's doing in production if you don't also take all your label code and automate it to see, you know, how your how your model is doing against the label that you trained on. So that's my one weird trick for monitoring. Don't just automate your features and in your inference, but also automate your label as well. Backing off the, the monitoring end of things, it's also really important to not just monitor, monitor your models, your data, but also to kind of monitor your system. Um, because you really need to be vigilant about the health of your dedicated model servers um, or services at, that are deployed, because this can be just as important or even more important than um, like the health of your data pipelines. Um, because you have to think about data stores, web servers, routers, um, cluster node system health, etc. Um, it goes. There's a lot more to things than just making sure the model's doing well, but also make sure your system can handle load and those sort of things as well. It's actually an interesting thing because uh, I, I, you know, I never really considered that. I'm, uh, I'm more like the in the lab data scientist type of guy. But when I was at the MLOps conference in Toronto, uh, this whole I guess you can call it ML observability. I guess would be the term for for to describe it. Like, that's a huge, huge thing that's that's been coming up. A lot of a lot of companies out there uh, building tooling for that. Oh, so, yeah. Amazing! I love all these advice. It's um, super valuable knowledge. I, I love to see you guys sharing those things. And also, one of the top uh, pain points in data science and data engineering is usually having to deal with the mismatch of development and production environment, like we were just talking earlier in, in the space. And has this ever been a problem to you guys? Uh, <laughs> I know we talked about it earlier, but it's part of the question. And how can this mismatch turn out to be a problem? Uh, and what tools or methods would you use to fix them? Uh, Kirsten, do you want to kick this one off since we were talking about it? <laughs> yeah, sure. I, uh, you know, I, it's funny because I work with tabular data so often and I work in cloud environments. So this one is actually probably one of the easier ones for me to solve with the, the use cases that I have. Um, you know, if you're that's maybe my biggest advice for folks that maybe are working in tabular data is if you're not yet developing in a cloud environment, like if you don't develop, don't develop locally and then go to the cloud, like just start in the cloud. Um, it's, it's might be easier than you think. <laughs> and that's one of the ways that I have seen avoids many of the problems that you're actually just coding in the environment that your model will be deployed. I don't have as much like as strong an opinion, shocking as it may sound, <laughs> like the, the uh, models which are deployed in other environments, because I do work so often in, you know, cloud and tabular data. So that's one of the ones I'm super excited to hear what Hapreet and Michael have to say in terms of like those edge, you know, you're, if you're out on the edge, you're on, you know, small IoT devices or whatever, like how do you make sure that when you're developing for that environment that your model can actually run? I think one of the biggest things about uh, deploying anywhere is realizing the deployment bottlenecks. So um, is where you're deploying um, has compute problems, um, memory limitations, um, do models have to be built differently. These are really important things to think about. 
Um, in general, I just kind of want to go on a bit of a tangent. Um, one big thing that I see with like a lot of like ma massive, massive applications that really do need um, like parallel computing, distributed computing um, is first of all, building these sort of massive models requires like massively optimizing your resources, not just use like all the cores on the computer and paralyze things, but also um, across a multi-node environment, basically like a multiple computer environment. Um, and then one thing I've seen that's really important um, to be able to like maintain models in production is to be able to really debug the production issues. And this is a real challenge for just about everyone um, because sometimes uh, models for machine learning fail kind of silently. Um, and it can be even more complicated when you have um, something running across many different nodes. And yeah, that's it. Yeah, so I guess with, with respect to like that, how do you determine what you're developing in the lab is gonna work on whatever hardware you're deploying to like just benchmark. Um, but you gotta make sure you're like benchmarking correctly, right? And so kind of the steps you could do that is maybe just start by uh, allocating, initializing whatever resources you need Prepare your data. Do a little bit of a, a warm up for for the for the model. Uh, iterate and then store the different times and differences in times for frame frame space, and then can calculate uh, those results. But you know you've got to spend time uh, writing code to to do all that. But I think benchmarking is an important uh, point. And uh, by the way, huge shout out to my my one of my BFF. Uh, in in the audience, Nikki, like Sabrina, like she's like an OG in ML ops, so. Uh, I'd highly recommend bringing her on if, if you have space for her. Oh, that's amazing. Hello, Miki. I just invited the, you to come on stage if you want to. Of course, feel free. Uh, yeah, so this is a, a great segue because I know there is like this meme that goes around. Like, can you use uh, deep learning? Yes. Should you? Probably not. And I know I'm talking this because I know how free this is a, a topic that you talk a lot about. And like Michael was saying, like models tend to fail silently in data science. So it's hard to maintain many models. It's hard to maintain many machine learning uh, models, multiple ones. So I was just reading that uh, data scientists usually use deep learning as a way to avoid this great mess of having to create these multiple ML models and maintain them. So my question here is, um, as, uh, like, are deep learning models harder to maintain in production or easier? And when should you be using them? When are they harder and when are they easier? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, good question. Um, I think I'll answer the second half of that question. When should you learn use deep learning? I think when the task calls for it, um, you know, you can't really do uh, classical machine learning to do like image classification or object detection or, or things like that. So uh, use deep learning when, when the task is, is calling for it. Um, but there's now, like, you can do deep learning on, on structured data too, tabular data. I was talking to somebody from, um, from Google, uh, his name is Mark Ryan, who wrote an entire book on uh, deep learning for structured data. And uh, it's an amazing book. And they recently, um, there's a paper that came out that's called a TAB PFN. And it's a, a transformer that solves small tabular classification problems in like lightning fast speed, uh, which is definitely interesting um, and worth checking out. But um, I, I think I might have lost track of your question, so I'm going to pause there. <laughs> no, yeah, the question is, um, are deep learning models harder or easier to maintain production is basically. Probably, uh, probably harder. Um, because, <laughs> like, you know, you don't get that same kind of yeah. explainability or interpretability as you would, I think, with with more uh, classical ML approaches. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, go ahead, Kirsten. Is is everyone up on the tab PFN drama in tabular? <laughs> Do people know about this? I, I didn't know about the I didn't know there's drama associated with it. Um, yeah. 
there's a lot of drama around taboo events. So if, if you're if you're um, wanting to uh, dive into the more social dynamics around, which for some reason tabular inference has its own like weird social thing, it's that's a good way to to waste a couple hours uh, digging into the tab PFN announcement. And then like I'm, I think folks are probably very familiar with um, with uh, Boyan's like XG boost everything um sort of position on tabular so that uh that that honestly is close to to my position is that in general um gradient boosting performs better than deep learning for tabular and so um i i tend to be like relegate some time to maybe finding the one or two edge cases where your deep learning is going to perform better for your tabular data but otherwise like just use these simple models that are really easy to get in production relative to deep learning and are pretty, you're going to have a lot of folks that know how to maintain them. Um, and, and that just like for, for tabular, at least that's what I would do. Just stick with at this point, gradient boosting um, and think of deep learning as, you know, experimental. Yeah, this is a, a great thing to keep in mind as well of this tip tip. And also, before we go to the next question, and this the last question I have for you guys, I'm just opening up for the audience. So if you're in the audience and have a question you want to ask the speakers here, you can just request to speak right now and I'll add you later, or just drop your question in the comments and I'll read and ask them um, your questions. So, okay, the next question, last one I have for you is, how do you know when the model is not working as well as expected? I need I need Mickey to respond to this question because uh, because she came so highly recommended. It's just like, hey there. I, I need to. <laughs> Hi everyone. Hey Mickey. Hey hey. Uh, okay, so just because I I just got off the bus, uh, can you repeat the question again? Yeah, Mickey. So the question is, how do you know when the model is not working as well as you expected? Ah, uh, gotcha. So the fun thing is that to the previous question of. Um, is deep learning harder to use in production than, let's say, vanilla machine learning? Uh, I actually have a hot take on that. And, uh, well, I don't know, it might be a lukewarm take, which is that I don't think deep learning at this point is significantly more difficult to use in production than vanilla machine learning. And the reason why I say that is because, so um, prior to uh, becoming head of solutions at MLOps over at FutureForm, uh, I worked on the ML platform team over at MailChimp, and you know most people who know MailChimp, they understand we're an email marketing company. Implies a lot of like NLP text data, uh, but we also do a bunch of stuff with computer vision. And uh, the thing is, you know, for a lot of teams who are trying to do computer vision or NLP-based stuff, uh, for us, for example, we had uh, some we and still do. Uh, had products and features over at MailChimp that were focused on generative, generative de design. So specifically, we work with uh, small, medium-sized businesses who need to generate email marketing copy and uh, stuff like that, you know, that's aligned with their brand uh, template. Uh, you know, most of the data scientists were very well-versed with taking essentially like pre-trained models, pre-trained deep learning models, fine-tuning them, and applying and essentially using that to deliver a high amount of value. Now, I think why people sometimes get a little bit stuck on deep learning being very hard in production is because, uh, for one thing, uh, it tends to expose a lot of issues that people already have with deploying machine learning models in a scalable and efficient manner. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, one thing is that a lot of companies don't and teams will not always put in the effort to first establish baselines, right? What is the performance or the impact you would expect of the model once it's deployed? Or of any, even like a rules-based system. And that takes a lot of discipline because sometimes what that means is saying, hey, we're going to run a rules-based or heuristic um, uh, pipeline for a little while maybe let's say, you know, one or two months. If you're Google, it's probably a day because, you know, of how much data they get. 
uh, for banks, it might be maybe more to, you know, one to three months. You have to really kind of commit to that project, not delivering immediate returns. Once you've established that baseline, then that gives you ability to start layering on or trying out different models, different architectures, different pipelines, really being able to intelligently kind of experiment with that. And that's the second part that a lot of companies lack, that sometimes having deep learning models exposes or deep learning pipelines is they don't always have a good experimentation system. And what do I mean by that? Well, a lot of people assume that they are Google or Facebook scale. And when you have millions or, you know, hundreds of thousands of data points coming in at every second, every hour of using a specific product or feature, you can get the p-value. You can, you can do some significant p-value hacking. You're always going to get significance no matter what kind of statistical test you throw at it. But for companies, for example, if you're a digital health company and let's say you are not allowed to, uh, or even your email marketing campaigns could be considered human experimentation or you're a digital health company or whatever, or maybe, for example, you only have 50 or 100 uh, you know, individuals right, that you can collect data off of. Well, that means you have to be statistically much more rigorous. Because not only do you have to determine the significance level, uh, but you also have to determine the sample size for which you will get significance, right? So a lot of companies, and they assume this too sometimes, where it's we have infinite compute, we have infinite compute, we have infinite uh, storage capacity, uh, we have infinite data, which means we can then kind of toss stuff at it, and and that's really just not how it works. And to a certain degree, I think that's that's one big bias that has been a little bit kind of uh, marketed, right, is that you need really big data to do good data science. And that you really, you need really huge data to do deep learning. And that's just not simply true. You can get a lot of value out of all of those. And rather than constantly seeing deep learning as this completely separate uh, tool set, uh, instead I think people should probably consider deep learning models as part of the data scientist toolkit to begin with. Just like vanilla models, just like your logistic regression, your XG boost. I think the, the challenge when we get too married to a single tool is that as data scientists and as ML engineers, or even as product developers, you know, it makes us sort of focus deeply on like the tactic as opposed to the strategy and the outcome, which is that you should always kind of adapt or pick up the tools to the problem at hand. But I do think that you know, as someone who's worked on a bunch of these teams where we've actually put deep learning pipelines, not just, in, not just models, but deep learning pipelines into production. Um, what I've observed is that maybe in the, er in the early days when people had to kind of bootstrap and train their deep learning models from scratch, absolutely, very, very challenging. But nowadays, when you have so many sort of powerful deep learning models that are, you know, you can just pip install, take it off the shelf, fine tune it, and then deploy it, alongside your, quote, unquote, like, you know, vanilla machine learning models, uh, a lot of the challenges, I think, are a little bit over overhyped. And they're really exposing challenges that companies have in deploying models in general, deploying pipelines, making sure they establish good baselines, uh, making sure that they have a good experimentation program. The other aspect, too, is feature engineering. That's something that people don't necessarily, we, we all acknowledge that is the art, in data, uh, the art and science of data science. Uh, but I think people forget that, you know, so, so what ha happens sometimes, right, is people will not do any feature engineering and then they'll just toss a deep learning model at it. And, you know, hey, that's like totally fine, right? There, there's, I, I'm not saying that's like a, a bad tactic, but what I'm saying is that for vanilla machine learning models, we've accepted that, hey, you need to do significant feature engineering to get to work. But with deep learning models, you know, that was part of the sort of the value prop when deep learning models first came out was, hey, they can handle any kind of data. And they can handle large data, and they can handle complicated data. Yes, absolutely. But if a team or a data scientist is going to neglect the feature engineering part, which, if you really think about it, is like the hardest part of a machine learning pipeline to actually like, automate because of the uh, demands on domain knowledge, then even if you got like a deep learning model and compared it against a vanilla machine learning model where you've done significant feature engineering, it probably isn't going to perform as well. So those are, those are some thoughts, uh, but would love to hear what people think.
Um, really quick. I mean, that kind of echoes uh, what Treya Shankar said, and uh, she had a paper operationalizing machine learning. She had an interview study of, I think, like 16, oh, sorry, 19 um, data professionals. And someone in the, one of the participants in the interview study echoed kind of the same sort of thing. Um, with deep learning models, um, they can often share like the same underlying embedding, um, or a lot of their models can share like embeddings from neural networks. And that was like really easy for post-deployment maintenance rather than maintaining features as well as they should. Um, and I'll let other people chat now. I think this is that was one super interesting example, especially coming from your experience of like deploying all of these different types of architectures. It's like super cool to hear, especially because that's why I love, you know, as much as I say, almost I think that the majority of data scientists should know at least one way of getting their model end to end, like doing all their own feature engineering, automating it, doing all their training, collecting their artifacts and productionizing it. I think data scientists should have at least one you know, pattern that they're able to do all by themselves. This is why having specialized people in MLOps to me is so important because there is there is so much depth to all of the, um, to that entire architecture that only comes from having studied it for and seen it and done it in all these different contexts. Um, so I, I just wanted to say that was super interesting to hear. I would love to hear more monologues as I, I just, you know, those, those are all the, the, I learned so much just from hearing someone like talk about their experience and then having, have a point of view on like, this is actually the way the world works, which is super rare. Yeah, exactly. I do feel the same way here. And thank you so much, Mickey, for sharing your experience. I've learned a lot from just you talking about it. And I love uh, this take that you have on decoding models and that, uh, I mean, it's not a common point of view when it comes to that. It, it uncovers actually so many other problems people usually have on their pipelines or production environments or a development environments. And I think this is, is such a great thing to bring here, especially when we're talking about deep learning. So um, is there anything you guys would like to add overall? I think we're hitting the one hour mark, so I'm just going to wrap everything up. Um, so yeah, just any announcements you guys would like to make, any events coming up, feel free to take the mic and just promote. Uh, yeah, I've got a number of events coming up um, for my community, Deep Learning Daily community. Um, so just the deeplearningdaily.community. I've got events coming up in December, which are like live coding events. Uh, we're going to see a principal data scientist from Microsoft uh, is going to teach us how to use graph convolutional networks to do some recommender systems, um, another hands-on uh, kind of computer vision ML ops pipeline um, walkthrough with one of the computer members. And then also in uh, January, I've got events with uh, with Josh Tobin, who's from Full Stack Deep Learning and Gantry and OpenAI. Uh, I've also got Glenn Yosher from Yolo V5 and also Yannick Kilcher will be coming on for, uh, for sessions as well. Uh, so deep learning daily that community check it out y'all i'm about to take off but thank you so much for inviting me sabrina i learned a lot from hearing uh, everyone share their experience peace out y'all uh the the company that i founded with my very equally and um even more uh more so amazing husband who ran growth for a bunch of parts of uh amazon as well is coming out of stealth mode in the next couple months. So I'll be tweeting about that when that happens. Um, otherwise, I just wanted to give, you know, Michael, the the paper that he mentioned, which is called Operationalizing Machine Learning, an interview study, which you can find. Um, I don't, how do you pronounce it verbally? I'm not from academia. A R archive. Is it pronounced archive? A-R-X-I-V. Yes, <laughs> good enough. <laughs> Um, so you can find that anyway on that platform. Um, and then the other two books that I really liked about this topic uh, that I read recently, Machine Learning Design Patterns and Designing Machine Learning Systems, both from O'Reilly 
those are really great books. Just like if you, that idea of a simple workflow that you've got a standard for and that you're following each time, those are some examples of, of patterns for that. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to chat with you all and meet some new friends. Looking forward to hearing what's coming out of stealth mode soon. Uh, that should Thank be a lot you. of fun. Thank you. <laughs> um, as far as uh, things going on in my world, um, nothing really. Um, but I really recommend people check out that paper, um, especially if you come from like a different industry um, or if you come from autonomous vehicles or retail or ads or you build recommenders, whatever. Um, people, there's not really one size fits all for ML ops um, and for game models production. And read these sort of papers really can open your eyes to, uh, here's the problems that we have in autonomous vehicles. And here's why sometimes we might want to use synthetic data, for example. Um, here's problems that we have in recommender systems. And in recommender systems, we often, we often have to return models a lot more frequently because we have new products that go on you know, websites or whatever. And similarly, there's often different uh, concerns, cybersecurity, fintech, et cetera. Um, so I really recommend uh, checking out problems people have in different uh, verticals than you may have. Amazing. And thank you guys so much for being here. Everyone, don't forget to follow everyone here on stage and uh, Harpreet and Stella as well, who are here with us. And Miki, thank you so much for this uh, great surprise of joining the stage as well. It's been great hearing from you. And I think we should uh, make another spaces where you can join and talk even more about this amazing experience that you have with machine learning and deep learning models and data science in general. Um, and and loves, I mean, great stuff. So yeah, thank you so much, everyone, listeners, everyone on the audience, speakers. And I see you guys on the next week on the Rec Talk and the week after that on another machine learning and data science uh, spaces. So bye-bye, thank you.